The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. Please stand with me as we read God's word. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as you just heard, we're trucking along in Hebrews. The end is coming soon. Um, that's not me with some placard being a doomsdayer or something. Just truly the end of Hebrews is, is coming soon. And uh, I'm excited uh, for that. This has been one of our longest running uh, books that we've been preaching through. And it's just been good, good for my soul. And my hope is that it's been the same for you. Uh, before we just turn to pray and look at sermon title and the main idea here, I just want to say thank you. Uh, this past month, I um, received uh, numerous just words of encouragement, letters, thank yous. Um, the deacons on your behalf um, blessed our family with a very generous gift and, uh, for Pastor Appreciation Month. And I just want to say thank you. It is just a pure and absolute honor to be able to be your pastor, to be able to shepherd you, uh, to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to love and pour myself out um, with the aim of uh, seeing you mature and be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I couldn't imagine being anywhere else, and for the time being, Jesus has said, you're not going anywhere else. Some of you, you're like, man, shucks, you know. Some of you guys are like, all right, maybe that's good, um, but it is just, it is incredible. Um, I couldn't imagine pastoring um, any different place, and so I just wanted to say on the behalf of my family and the behalf of the other elders that have been called to care and be the under-shepherds um, of this congregation, this flock, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for loving us so well and caring for us and praying for us, okay? Appreciate you guys. Sermon title this morning comes right out of verse 2, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Main idea, if you get nothing else this morning, walk away with this singular truth that God's people, you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, we will run the race of faith and we can run the race of faith with endurance as we look to Jesus. We will do this by looking to Jesus, the one who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen the proclamation of His Word. What you don't need this morning is just another word from another, another human being just talking to you for the next 40 minutes. That's, we've got better things to do with our lives. But if there's the possibility of the living God by the power of His Spirit to take the words that we just heard read to us 
and by his power and strength pierce us, lay us open in such a way to where we can walk away changed this morning because of the proclamation of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is worth every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every month of every year until the day we die and go and see our, our heavenly, heavenly Father, okay? So let's pray to that end, that this morning would be an encounter with God because of these verses here before us, all right? So let's pray for this. Father, we are here to glorify you. Lord Jesus Christ, the aim right now is to abide in you, to find the sustenance and the nourishment we need and which only you can provide. Thus, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would immerse this time, drench this time, empower this time, strengthen this time, bring this to come to pass that the moments we are about to spend together as brothers and sisters who've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you bring it to pass that this gathering together would be nothing less than you, Holy Spirit, pouring gospel fuel into our soul so that we would walk away changed having considered how looking to Jesus is the fuel that propels us as redeemed refugees here in this world. King Jesus, we're asking this not so that anyone's name would be magnified, but so that the sole name that is worthy to be magnified is the name above all names would receive that magnification, and that is you, King Jesus. So come and do this for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. So here we are, Hebrews chapter 12. Some pretty, pretty um, familiar verses for us, yes? Like if you know anything about Hebrews, you probably know about the great chapter 11, the gallery of faith, and you probably know about these verses here, specifically verse 2. And what we know about these verses, and the reason why they're so familiar to us here as we roll into chapter 12, is because these verses are some of the most cherished words of encouragement that we could possibly find, I dare say, in the New Testament, most, most specifically or more pertinently here in Hebrews, this letter that was written to these Jewish Christians. Now, travel back in time with me and remember how we got here to this point where we're standing on the threshold of Hebrews chapter 12. The road to this point took us through the door of chapter 10. More specifically, the last verse in chapter 10, verse 39, where the author declared to his audience, his congregation, and subsequently declared to you and me that we, believers in Christ, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but rather we are those who have faith. And there's the key word right there. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. And it was right there, that door of faith in the last verse of chapter 10 that the author then walks through because we discover that the door of chapter 10 led us into the gallery of faith known as chapter 11. And it was here in the gallery of faith, chapter 11, that we observed what he calls now a great cloud of witnesses. Men and women who not only walked by faith in the living God, but also died in faith, serving as an example for other brothers and sisters who've been saved by grace, spurring them on to do the same. 
But lest we forget that Hebrews is all about the absolute incomparable supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the author rolls out of that gallery of faith in chapter 11, rolls into these verses we have this morning at the beginning of chapter 12, and he calls us to observe one final portrait. We've seen all kinds of portraits, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and he runs on down the line. We've studied and looked at all kinds of portraits, but there is one final portrait that we must study. While all the portraits we saw in chapter 11 can go really far in motivating us to persevere to the end, ultimately those portraits will not be enough to keep us and give us the strength and the help we need to run the race of faith firm to the end. They just can't do it. You see, what we need is one more portrait to look at. A final perfect portrait, a final perfect example of someone who did run the race of faith, someone who ran that race of faith with endurance to the end, someone who not only offers a perfect example, but can give the necessary help that you and I need to go on and on and on and on and on in the race of faith, firm to the end, till we cross the finish line, not have only lived by faith, but dying in that same faith. And to no one's surprise, as we roll into chapter 12, these first four verses, the final portrait, the author exuberantly declares, we do have that one example. And that one example is who else? The Lord Jesus Christ. So in order to stir us up to cling to Jesus, to order to stir us up to cling to the faithful one who ran the race of faith perfectly before us, the author wants you and I to cling to this Lord Jesus Christ, and in order to spur us on to cling to him again, he's going to dip into a metaphor. He's going to pick up a Bible metaphor that you find in a lot of the New Testament, and it's this idea of referring to this walking by faith as a race, as an athletic event. And so the author is going to pick up imagery of a marathon, this long distance run, telling us that the walk of faith is very much a long distance run. And as we're going to see, he's not just zeroing in on us as individuals. The walk of faith that is very much a long distance run, a long marathon, a long obedience in the same direction, there are individual aspects to this. It is, in one sense, a solo run, but it is not merely a solo run. What he's going to encourage us to see, and as he's been encouraging these Hebrews all throughout, the race of faith is very much a community run as well. In other words, as we individually, men and women, who've been saved by grace, we have an individual, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That means, according to Hebrews 12, you are in the race. King Jesus saved you, put you on the starting line, slapped you on the back, and boop, gave you a little nudge, and off you went. You went running. You're running a solo race. But what you also need to recognize is this. We also run as members of a Jesus family. So as we are running the race, we can look left and we can look right and go, I'm not the only one running in this race. 
illustration for us this morning, sort of a unique illustration, one that we haven't done before, and it's going to require some participation. Brady Reader, where are you at, buddy? Stand up, Brady Reader, right? Nope, you can stay right there. You don't, yeah, you don't need to come down here, man. Stay right. So here's Brady. Brady has been saved by grace through faith. So there you go, man. Start doing this. There you go. He's running. He's running the race. Now, if he looks left and he looks right, it can be lonely. Am I the only one running? It might seem like I'm the only one running. Now, everyone else stand up. You go to the deal. Come on. If your bones and your joints allow you to do it, there you go. Now look left and now look right. All of a sudden, the race of faith is just a little less. You guys can have a seat. It's a little less lonely. There's a reason why the author is going to say in verse 1, let us also lay aside these things. He's looking at the individual, the dual reality of the individual and the community aspect of what does it mean to run the race of faith. So the question has now come in the book of Hebrews. Remember, we are in the practical application of 10 chapters that have been doing nothing less than saying Jesus is better. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the name above all names. Giving your life in total allegiance to him is not settling for second best. What you're doing is clinging to him who is the best the question now is, how do you run day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, running the race that says, my faith is resting on him who is better? Because remember, the temptation in the race as individuals and in the community is to recognize, we recognize clearly, a lot of us recognize, the race is long. The race is hard. The race is tiring. And we're tempted at times to go, ah, I just don't know if I can do this again another day. The doubts and the questions, I just don't know if I can do this again today. We're tempted to believe, surely I'm the only one running this race again today. So if this race picture is the case, and I believe it is, as the Holy Spirit inspired the author to write about this, then the author wants us to ask some questions so that we might spur on one another and find the motivation we need to keep running the race for another day. The question that we should ask is, how should we run this race? If the Jewish Christians were tempted to bow out of the race and go back to something other than Jesus, the author doesn't want them to do that, so he's saying, let me show you how to run the race. When the muck and the mire of life get thick, how can we keep going in the race? When suffering and hardships we face rise up and are all we know, what is the secret of safely arriving at the finish? When questions and doubts creep in, when spiritual weariness sets into our muscles, so to speak, when stamina fades, when hope wavers, when we're just not sure the endurance to pursue Jesus one more day is there, how do you keep going in the race of faith? How? 
the answers to these questions is verses 1 through 4 in Hebrews chapter 12. He's going to tell you. This is practicality 101. He says, I know it's hard. I know you want to quit. I know you want to bail on Jesus and go back. But to do that would be to the eternal danger of your soul. Don't fall flat on your face. Don't sprint nine-tenths of the way. Don't think the marathon is something that will wrap up quickly. You need to have the endurance mindset, and I want you to have the endurance mindset so as you as an individual are running, you can be that encouragement for the people to your left and to your right. So the Holy Spirit-inspired answers come to us by asking a handful of questions of this text. And the first one can be this. We're going to find it in the first part of verse 1. If we're going to run the race in a way where we run it firm to the end, we need to ask this question first. What do I need to reject? What do I need to reject? In your Bible, you can scroll to it. You can turn to it. First part of verse 1 the author says this, therefore, there's a whole lot packed in that therefore. There are 11 chapters packed into that therefore, okay? Therefore, because of the past 11 chapters, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, here it is, let us also lay aside what? Every weight and lay aside sin which clings so closely. Listen, the men and women who run the race of faith Firm to the end are men and women who first run unencumbered. They run unencumbered. They run in such a way where they're not weighed down and burdened down with things. Any runner in a marathon who wants to finish the race lays aside anything which might hinder them from completing the race. You don't see any marathon runner running the Boston Marathon running in a full load of winter clothing. They're just not going to do it. They strip for action. They literally get down to like the absolute bare minimum essentials so that they can run that race well. Anything that might weigh them down, anything that might cause them to miss the mark of crossing the finish line and attaining the prize, what they do is this. They just chuck it off, man. They get rid of it. They recognize this is not necessarily good. This is not necessarily bad, but it's not what is best to attain the prize. I need what is best so that I might cross the tape and get the prize. So what do they do? They take any way, they take anything that might cause them to miss the mark and they chuck it off their bodies. And this is exactly the same way it is in the race of faith, brothers and sisters. It's the exact same way it is in the race of faith. This is why we must reject, he says, sin which clings so closely. In other words, as you run the race of faith, stop fooling around with sin. Sin is like a viper, a rattlesnake. It's deadly, poisonous, alert, will kill you. And just as it would be insane for me to reach back behind here and pull out a rattlesnake and then put it in my arms and start pedaling it and, and coddling it and, oh, such a precious rattlesnake, start kissing on it. You guys would go, this guy's nuts. Absolutely insane. Why would you do that? Why would you coddle death so close? But some of us are trying to run the race of faith coddling the snake of sin. 
As you run the race of faith, stop fooling around with sin. Why are you fooling around with it? The call to reject sin which clings so closely is the call to lean on the Holy Spirit and by His power put sin to death. Too many of us are trying to do this to sin in our life. Instead of sort of taking a knife and like putting that thing to death, what we're over there trying to do to our sin is we're trying to go... We're trying to breathe life into it. And he says, don't do that. That's a surefire way to make sure you don't finish the race. Lean rather on the Holy Spirit and by His power put it to death. The call here is the call to stop coddling the idea that you can hold on to anything you know to be sinful and at the same time run the race well. We know our Bibles well enough, and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we know well enough when something is declared a sin. Something that separates men and women from God. And we also know well enough to know when we're playing around, monkeying around, coddling sin and drawing it close, thinking that somehow I'm going to be able to run the race well by wrapping myself up with sin Reject sin, he says. Put it away. Put it to death. But also notice that he says, let us also lay aside. That is, reject every weight, says the author. Now, this is slightly different, I think. I don't think he's saying the same thing twice. I don't think he's saying reject every weight. By the way, every weight is sin. I think he's giving us two categories of thought. My hunch is that the majority of us here are not intentionally drawing sin close, wrapping it around us, like binding our legs, so to speak, so that we're trying to run the race like this, hopping down the line. My hunch is that that's not most of us. I'm not saying none of us are there. But my hunch is that most of us are finding ourselves ineffective spiritually, weakened in our faith spiritually, because we are unnecessarily burdening ourselves with things that aren't evil, aren't wicked, aren't sinful, not wrong, not bad, just not necessarily the best. And so we're just loading these things down on us. And so what he says to us is, listen, guys, I'm not talking anymore about the sin that clings so closely It's slightly different talking about rejecting every weight, and that's because the weights, he says, that's the reason why he has to tell us to reject every weight, is because we burden ourselves. It may not be sinful in themselves, but there are things that we just load ourselves down with, things that hinder our effectiveness spiritually, weaken our faith, dampen our zeal, reduce our power to resist temptation, and then in the end tend to enslave us. There are a bevy of examples that could be given right now as things that are not bad, not wrong, not evil, not wicked, not sinful, but not the best. These kinds of weights that we go, you know what, maybe I'll put this on me. It's like the marathon runner going, yeah, I don't know, maybe running with like that windbreaker jacket wouldn't be so bad. It's like, well, that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it. It may not help you get to the end because you're going to overheat a little bit. Or some guy saying, I'm going to run the marathon, not in the world's like slimmest set of shoes, but I'm going to run in a pair of those like big puffy, like Napoleon Dynamite winter, winter puff, puff boots. It's like, I guess you could do that, you know, run a marathon like that. But like, why would you? That's an unnecessary burden you're placing upon yourself. So there's all kinds of burdens we can place on ourselves. 
that hinder our spiritual effectiveness, one of them, the Bible would argue, could be this idea of family. Family? How could family be a weight that burdens us? Aren't we supposed to care for our families? Yes, doesn't the Bible say that a husband who does not care for his, his family and work in such a way to provide for them is worse than an unbeliever? Yes. Doesn't the Bible say that mothers and fathers are to care for their children? Yes. But all of us know how a family can become an idol. For the single, a family can become an idol. Where you burden yourselves down with the lust and the want of being in a relationship, and that becomes the thing that consumes you instead of Christ. For those who are married, your children are your family, and your family can become an idol. There are many people who neglect the gathering of the saints on the Sunday morning because of their family. They don't scatter throughout the week because they have prioritized the family more than gathering with the saints. There's a reason why Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, when he's talking about the cost of discipleship, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So is Jesus really saying you have to hate your family to prove your love? That seems really contradictory. He's not saying that you're supposed to go through life with some red-faced, veiny-necked, vitriolic contempt for your spouse, for your children, for your mother, for your father. But he's saying when you place family on the scale, when you place Jesus on the scale, what it should become evident is this, your primary allegiance and love is this. I am a redeemed refugee. I am a gospel pilgrim. My allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what takes supreme superiority in my life, and it's that allegiance that I will then put on and see things through in my life, and I will order my life according to that allegiance so that then my family and the activities, the things I say yes, no, or to, that falls in order to Jesus. Most of us are happy to flop it and say, yeah, Jesus can sort of be like the little, the little guy in the back who gets a little couple minutes of my time, but I'm going to prioritize, prioritize it, my family in my life. You guys, you guys get the deal. Another one could be this, entertainment. Is entertainment wrong? No. Is entertainment sinful? No. Is it wrong to have an Amazon Prime account? No. Is it wrong to watch YouTube or Netflix? No. But how many of us have had our spiritual lives hindered and removed of effectiveness because we are so in love with being entertained that the hours pass in the evening and we stay up too late and then we have no drive or desire to get up in the morning and seek the Lord. How many of us have an Instagram or a TikTok account and what we're a Facebook account and you just find the hours fly by because we're just sitting here doing this? Next thing you know, like, whoa, man, my whole lunch break is just scorched. Like that was a whole hour of my life that literally just went away and all I did was feed on basically spiritual junk food. 
It's not saying that you're not a Christian. Not saying that having an Instagram account and looking at pictures or doing t- or whatever is evil or wicked sinful. Some of it is. Some of us are maybe consuming content that is not of Christ, and you need to put that to death. But I'm saying the bulk of us are just enjoying entertainment in a way to where it is heaped on us like a weight, and it burdens us down. It dampens our zeal. How many of us sat there at night for 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight, and you're like, oh man, all I did was this for two hours, and then lay your head on the pillow and go, man, I love Jesus more because of that. Probably none of us. So the question the author is saying is, if you're going to do this and breast the tape and finish the race of faith in a way that magnifies Jesus, why burden yourself down with that? Why put that weight upon yourself? Reject the weight, reject the sin. This is what we need to reject. By the way, there's all kinds of other examples that could be given there, but those, those are worthy of our consideration today. You guys know how to apply the scriptures there. So whether it's weight or sin, reject it. But we also need to ask another question, and it is this. Not only what do we need to reject, but how do I need to run? It's the last part of verse 1. Look at your copy of scripture there. Last part of verse 1. How do I need to run? Answer, let us run. Here it is, with endurance. With endurance. With endurance run the race that is set before us. So the men and women who run the race of faith firm to the end, they reject every weight, they reject sin, they also run with endurance. As we'll see in a few verses, verses 3, 4 down there, verses 2, 3, and 4, that it was Jesus who ran with perfect endurance. Look down there. He endured the cross. There was endurance. He endured hostility from sinners. There's endurance. So to run with endurance, the author is saying, is just the invitation to run the race like Jesus. That's what he's he's inviting you to do. It's to run the race of faith by not leaning on your own strength, but by leaning on Jesus who's able to help. Because some of us, I mean, the author, man, he's, he's intuitive. He knows what's going on. The author knows enough to know that if you're to say to a congregation, chuck off every weight, put sin to death, some of us are like, man, I'm going to go home and I'm going to get this thing done. Like, I'm going to walk out of here and what you're doing in that moment, the motivation of your soul right then is, I'm going to lean on my own weight. I'm going to lean on my own strength, my own power to go home and do it. He's like, no, 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 no. If you try to do that, you're just going to go, skid, dive, trip, stumble, fumble, fall. Yes, chuck the weight, chuck the sin, but do it with endurance, i.e. run the race of faith by looking to Jesus, leaning on Jesus, not your own strength, but lean on him who is able to help. As gospel pilgrims who live out our alien citizenship in this world, we will experience difficulties along the way. Amen? And at various points, in various ways, every one of us can be tempted to drop out. We have highs and we have lows. Some of us are in seasons of lows right now where you're just like, I don't know if I can run the Jesus race, race one, more, one more second. You want to throw in the towel, and what you want to do is you're, you're, you're playing with, you're flirting with the temptation to go back to your before Jesus days when life was easier, just like the Hebrews are being tempted to do. Remember what the temptation is for the Hebrews? I don't know, man. This Jesus thing means my home is being plundered. It means some of us are being thrown in jail. Trials, hardships, sufferings are coming our way, all because we claim the name of Jesus to be our Savior. It seems like if I just go, Jesus isn't my we could go back and all of a sudden life would be a little bit easier. 
That's the temptation they had. The temptation is the same for us. It's not the temptation to go back to Judaism, but it's the temptation to go and believe that your before Jesus days were somehow the, the better, shinier, grass is greener days. But what the author knows is to do that would be to the eternal danger of your soul. And the author is no fool. He knows the day-in, day-out pursuit of Jesus is tough. Thus the Holy Spirit through him says, run with endurance. Run with endurance. Whatever happens today, however I feel in this moment, whether I'm on my own or in a crowd, even if I'm laughed at, even if it costs me everything, endure. And I'm not enduring because I am strong. Do not hear what the author is not saying. He's not saying, run, guys, because you have the strength in and of yourselves to do it. He's not saying that. We're not running the race with endurance because you are strong, because I am strong. We run the race with endurance because in our weakness to endure, Christ's power is made perfect, and by His strength, you and I can and will keep going. This is nothing but sheer invitation just to cast everything on Jesus. Run the race with endurance. So in other words, runners who reject every weight, reject sin, and then run with endurance are runners who know the answer to the question, where do I need to look? And that's point number three. Where do I need to look if I'm going to reject? Where do I need to look if I'm going to run with endurance? Verse two, the author says, here's where you need to look. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 2. You see, the men and women who run the race of faith firm to the end, they set their sights on Jesus. When you run a race, you focus on the prize and you stay focused without wavering. You don't shift your gaze. You lock aim, press clutch, shift gear, hit gas, and you fly forward. That's the kind of focus that we're to have in the race of faith. And the reason, listen, ask yourself these questions when you're reading your Bible. Let me show you how to read your Bible right now. Why is the author saying, look to Jesus? Is it because he's just trying to fill up some pages? It you know, sort of has a Holy Spirit quota. Man, you don't get a short letter, Mr. Author. I gave a short letter to Philemon, but you don't get one to a short letter like that. You have to have 13 chapters. And the guy's like, well, I better just write some stuff down, you know, to fill up the page. That's not what he's doing. He's writing the words in front of you because the Holy Spirit's leading him to write these words in front of you. So ask yourself the question, why does the author have to now say, you race of faith runner need to look to Jesus? I would argue this. The reason why the author says we must run the race by looking to Jesus is because all of us have the tendency to run the race by looking everywhere but Jesus. Instead of running with laser-like focus on Jesus, we run the race of faith with swivel necks, constantly setting our sights on rival attractions that promise life apart from God. He's saying run the race like this. Jesus is in front of you. You can know about him in the word. Set your sights on him and run like this. Whatever's going off, whatever's going crazy, whatever's going nuts, whatever's calling for your attention, let it just roll right off you. Keep going like this. He knows, though, our temptation is to run the race like this. We're just swivel necks, man. We're all over the place. 
If you go outside and you try to run down the street running like that, you're going to do this. You're just going to wipe out. But that's how most of us are trying to run the race of faith in Christ. What? This thing? This thing wants me to listen? This thing wants me to look? This thing wants me to believe? This thing wants me to talk? This thing wants me to go? And all the single time, the author is saying, no, 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 no. Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Him. Psalm 119, verse 37. Verse should be up on the screen behind me. Listen to what the psalmist says. The psalmist knew intimately this swivel neck inclination of his own heart all too well, which is why he sings to the Lord in verse 37, Lord God, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So when we're running the race of faith, we're constantly being beckoned in this world to say, this thing will give you life, this thing will give you life, this will give you life, this will give you life, this will give you life. And he says, no, 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 there's only one person who can give me life. Life is found in your ways, Lord God. I know the inclination of the eyes of my faith are to be enamored with things that are just utterly worthless. Worthless. And so I, I, what I need you to do is, Lord, I need you to do this. And look to the one who's not worthless, but to look to the one who's absolutely worthy. And to believe the promise that he alone is the one in whom I can find life for all, all of my ways. Listen, to merely set our sights on the great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11 would be to set your sights too low. Not unworthy to look at, but you're aiming too low if that's the best that any of us can do. The invitation here in this verse is to lift our gaze to the one worthy of our soul attention. Listen, saints, the world is full of pseudo-saviors offering you life in their ways. Don't be fooled by the pseudo-saviors, the fake-saviors ample opportunity to bite into a fake savior in this world today, but don't be fooled by pseudo-saviors. Instead, look to who Jesus is. Who is he? Jesus, he says in verse 2, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So as you're running, what you do is like, man, I'm going to remember who Jesus is. I'm locked in on him. Who is he? He is the founder of my faith. He's the perfecter of my faith. So let's keep running. How else can we look? We can look to what Jesus has done. What has Jesus done? He tells us with joy he endured the cross and he despised the shame. That's what he's done. So that's more fuel in my bones. I'm going to keep running because I know that he did this for me and that's why I have a right relationship with God and I'm going to keep running more and I'm going to look one last time. I'm going to look where Jesus is. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the throne on God. He's sitting down on the right hand of the throne of God. What we studied many months ago, all the way back in Hebrews chapter 1, is the sitting image of the great high priest who is our Lord and Savior is this. It is finished. You ain't got to earn anything else in this race of faith. It's finished. He is sitting down at the right hand of God. His priestly work is done. He's endured the cross. He's despised the shame. He did it with joy. And that is why he is the founder of your faith and the author of faith. And what he began, he's going to bring to completion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus.
He's the only one who has ever run the race of faith perfectly. And guess what? The race he ran is the race you are running right now. So, if you know your old hymns, there's one that's on the tip of your tongue right now. Soul, are you weary and troubled? Any souls weary and troubled this morning? No light in the darkness you see. Anyone find themselves in a season of life where it just seems like it's dark, man? I just don't see how there can be any light in this. There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Here it is. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Listen. Songs like this are not some pie-in-the-sky anesthetic crutch just to get us through yet another day. Either this is just a load of sentimental baloney, songs like that, or... Or they are songs that help us run the race of faith with endurance by reminding us to look, 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 look. Look to who? Look to Jesus as you're running the race. There's going to be times when you're doing this, running the race of faith, and you're just like, man, I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it one more. And what you need is another brother, another sister to come alongside, put their arm over you, lift your head up, and say, let's look. Let's look. Let's look to Jesus. I, I know the race is long. I know the race is hard. I know the race is tiring. I know the race is weary. I know you are faint of heart, but look. Let us look to Jesus. Finally, last question to ask. If we're going to run the race of faith well, we need to ask, how do I need to think? How do I need to think? Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider him. There it is. That's just the phrase. Think. Think on him. Think about him. Consider him who? Jesus. Jesus who? What? Endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The men and women who run the race of faith firm to the end are men and women who consider Jesus. That is, they think on Jesus. They think on Jesus. The race of faith set before us can make the strongest of us weary and faint-hearted. Anyone ever here been weary and faint-hearted in the race of faith? All right, nobody. Myself, all right? Check out. I'm going to preach it myself for a couple minutes if you get a couple things out of it. That's good. Yeah, right? And when we find ourselves fatigued in the race, we can wonder from where the motivation will come to press on. The Spirit actually says the Holy Spirit inspired prescription for weary, faint-hearted runners in the race of faith is think on Jesus. Isn't that sort of crazy? You would expect all kinds of other things there. Are you weary? Are you faint-hearted? Is the race just really running you down? You'd expect him to say, go to church, give some money, do some stuff. Do the... He says, no, 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 stop and consider him. Think about Jesus. 
When the world rages against us as it did against Jesus and seeks to knock us off course in our race as it did to Jesus, Jesus, he's saying, actually stands as our example here. You can go into 1 Peter chapter 2 where the apostle Peter said as much about Jesus standing as our example when he said these things. It should be up on the screen behind me here. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, here it is, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Listen, here's the example he set. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here is what Jesus did do. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus endured hostility from sinners. And the author says when we endure the same kind of hostility in the race of faith, we need to stop and we need to think on him. We need to consider how Jesus did not falter under the unflagging hostility of sinners and then to let that reality give wings to our feet and let that reality shoot adrenaline into your soul. Listen, brothers and sisters, God's people in the race of faith, they run it by rejecting. They run it with endurance. They run the race by looking and they run the race by considering him. Brothers and sisters, look at me. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Even though your race may include a lot to make you weary, even though you may find yourself entirely faint-hearted right now this morning, Let us focus on the finish line that is Jesus himself. What is the reward waiting for you at the end of the race? It's not heaven. It's not seeing grandma and grandpa. It's not having cool conversations with David and Samson and and all these. That's, that's That's not the reward at the end of the race. I'm telling you, the reward at the end of the race is Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. Jesus himself is our reward at the end of the race. Jesus is the crown. He is going to give us himself forever. So let us look forward to that reward, looking forward to Jesus in faith, and then with that reality before us, pull back and say, here I am today. I'm about to walk out these doors. I've got another six days and 22 hours before I gather with the saints again. Gather with the saints again. And so I'm going to run this race by looking, looking, looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to look. Help us to look. I just pray for us the prayer of that song that the psalmist gave us. The prayer that says, turn my eyes. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. We are going to be tempted to... Just full-on embrace a whole host of worthless, absolutely worthless things, thinking those worthless things are going to give us life in their ways. But it's just blatantly untrue. It's a lie from Satan himself. There's only one to whom we can look, only to one we can find life. 
and that is Jesus. So help us to look. Holy Spirit, empower us, strengthen us to run the race another day. If we are weary and faint-hearted, help us to reach out to another fellow runner so that we might run the race together, not thinking that we need to do it alone. Jesus, we ask this so that you might receive the glory you're worthy to receive, and it's in your name I pray all these things. Amen.